Good morning. Our scripture reading today is Daniel chapter 1, 8 to 21, and you can follow along on page 9. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, just bring it over there. It'd be great. Thank you. The whiteboard, yeah, we've got the whiteboard. Uh, I'm, I'm a visual learner, I've learnt that. Um, anyway, so I'm going to draw something later, and I'm left-handed, so give me grace, please, that'll be excellent. Um, my, my name's James, I think most, uh, some of you might not know me. Um, I run a church, a pastor of a church called The Common, and we meet in Willoughby and um, some of the surrounding suburbs are there. Uh, and it's nice to be with you today. You're, gonna, you're, you're getting a, a sermon that came off the printer at about 9.47 this morning uh, because the, the church that I pastor, will, they'll get this in the neck next week. Um, so it's actually nice to get it done a week early, which is lovely. And we're in this series on Daniel, so there's a little bit of context that I'll fill you in uh, as we go through this this morning. Uh, in 1992, I don't know what you're doing in 92, most of you are probably alive, um, I was a teenager, wild, wild man that I was, uh, but it was also a good year for the West Coast Eagles, if you remember, the West Coast Eagles. Yeah, don't worry, there's, if I told you how I really felt. But anyway, we, my, um, they, the West Coast Eagles went into the heart of enemy territory, didn't they? into Melbourne, uh, to the MCG to play the Mighty Cats uh, for the Premiership. And we know how it ended. West Coast came in and plundered and took the treasure. 
They took the treasurer out of Victoria, out of Melbourne, out of the MCG for the first time in over 100 years. The cup had been taken from Victoria. The cup had gone, the medals were taken, the articles from the MC, the holy MCG were taken to a powerful new empire in Perth. And it's a, it's a powerful new empire that's ruling over the book of Daniel. Uh, the Babylonian empire, as it was known, uh, was ruled by a cunning, a brutal, but brilliant tyrant named Nebuchadnezzar, who had recently taken control of Egypt and subdued all the territories that had been Egypt's, including the south kingdom of Israel called Judah. Uh, And as Nebuchadnezzar left Judah, he took with him a small band of hostages, including Daniel and his mates, and some vessels from the temple of the Lord back to the empire's capital, Babylon. And it would only be a few years later, let me draw this for you, this is where it becomes interesting, be only a few years later that actually that southern kingdom that southern kingdom, this is Egypt, that's the, the sea, yeah? That can, be, that can be Israel there. Wouldn't be long until Babylon, which ruled all, of, all around here, all around here, and all around here, and its capital was somewhere about here, Babylon, that they would come in here and completely crush the Israelites. Completely come in and crush the Israelites, smashing the temple and the walls of the city and thousands and thousands of people who were in that capital, God's people in the chosen city would be exiles and would be taken and whoops, and, and would end up living in all these different places in Babylon, including the, including the capital here, Babylon itself, but all over the place and would be kicked out of their home. And that, that little bit of history there, if you can, there we are, is called the exile. Uh, and the exile is one of the biggest themes in the Bible. And one of the biggest questions that's happening in Daniel, uh, and as we, we read scripture, is how were these exiles now going to live in a foreign land? Some exiles, some exiles so hated the Babylonian way that they, desired, that they decided to resist Babylon by revolting and withdrawing from Babylon. They would have nothing to do with this empire if they could help it. That was their, their tendency. Then there were some others who gave in adopting the Babylonian way and accepting these new gods that, that ruled in Babylon as their own. And so it just became more and more synchronistic type of culture. And you may think that these are the only two options that we have. 
the only two options that you have to live in a, as an exile in a strange land. Is it revolt and withdrawal? Or is it compromise? But the prophet Jeremiah told the exiles to do something totally different and totally surprising. He says this. He tells them to settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Go to the enemy, you're being taken, live in there and pray for them and love them and do good. Jeremiah, who is speaking on God's behalf, is saying it's not revolt and withdrawal and he's saying nor is it compromise. Jeremiah is talking about a third way in how to live in exile. And one of the main themes of the book of Daniel is about how to live this third way. But we also have another theme playing out in Daniel that, that runs throughout the book. And the, the theme answers the question of who is in control. Who's, who's in control of this? Who's ruling the dance? Is it the Babylonian army and the Babylonian gods? with their mighty army who look so powerful to this hopeless little place here? Or is it that hopeless little place and their God, Yahweh? Which God's going to win? That's actually what's going on. And that's what it would have been in the mind of the Israelites, of the exiles. They would have been thinking like that. Who's going to win? And these two themes on how to live and and which God's going to win, uh, intertwined throughout the book of Daniel. But the question of how to live is completely reliant on who actually rules. And so in today's sermon, I will look at both those themes. We want to look at both those themes because it's there in our reading today. And hopefully we can touch on both questions and we might be able to even answer them. <laughs> Who's ruling and how do we live? For as we read these uh, first six chapters, we will, well, the common will, sorry, that's for the common, we'll be reading those, you won't be, we will be. Uh, Daniel takes on Jeremiah's advice and lives this third way. In 1996, so a few years after 1992, this is not about football, um, I lived in England I went and lived in England for a while, uh, in the Midlands, and most of you, a lot of you have had time and lived overseas, and many of you, I can hear from your accents, you're from another place. The only time I've lived out of Australia was for a couple of years there, living in England, in the Midlands, near Birmingham, a little place called Bromsgrove. And I remember when I first got there, I was still a young man with no grey hair, and... Um, all my teeth and all that stuff. And I was walking down the road and a guy came up to me, it might have been the first day, and he said, I, I'm going to be, this is the worst accent. He goes, all right. And I went, 
I had no idea what he meant. Am I, what did you say? All right. No, I didn't. I had to go home and ask the bloke who I was living with, what does that mean? <laughs> he says, does it mean, hello, how are you? It means, g'day, mate. How are you going? I'm like, right, okay. Um, then I was introduced to warm beer, of course, and I got a taste for that. And uh, that was new to me, very new. Um, and then I even got assimilated into the football, the soccer culture, and uh, started following Aston Villa, if you know them. On the way home in the plane, I remember after living there for a couple of years, this was pre-internet, really, and, and got on the plane, and all of a sudden there was an Australian news woman speaking, presenter speaking on the news, and all of a sudden her accent sounded so bad, so bogan, so... Mate, I know I don't sound great, but that was awful. The, my point is, I was so assimilated into this culture, I'd be, started to become a little bit English. And in these early verses of Daniel, we see how Nebuchadnezzar is determined to assimilate uh, these young men who were the brightest and the best of Israel into this Babylonian culture more deeply, obviously, than my time in England, and he does it in three ways. Number one, he first taught them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and so he, he bathed them and immersed them into all their teaching. Um, and so th the point was they would come out as patriotic Babylonians after three years. You know, like the big American flag? It was like, you'll come out here and you'll love this. You'll be a Babylonian. Completely brainwashed. Uh, he also had them eat Babylonian food, which was, the, which was the best food, not sausage rolls and chips, you know, and, and a Coke. Uh, this was eye fillet and penfolds. This was the best. This was good stuff. You know, win them over with the food of the king. Uh, and he also gave them new names, names that were actually their names, Daniel and all the rest, their names were names that glorified Yahweh. And now they were given names that glorified the pagan gods of Babylon. And some, some commentators even argue that Daniel and his mates were made eunuchs when, they, when this happened. So they had, a, they had a, a lot of immersion into the Babylonian culture. It was a deep dive for three years of assimilation. And up to our reading today, we see no resistance to that assimilation. There's no resistance at all. Daniel and his friends have been brought into the inner circle, the inner ring of Babylonian culture and Nebuchadnezzar, this tyrant's influence. It was an inner ring that was controlled by fear and threats. Nebuchadnezzar's chief official, whose job it was to oversee this assimilation of these three four guys and, and many more, is scared of Nebuchadnezzar. We can read that in verse 10. He's scared for his life. And it would have been like that for Daniel and his friends. There was fear. And for those of you who are Star Wars fans, uh, you know Darth Vader and his chief officials. They wanted to be in on the inner ring with Vader. Yeah, But if anything upsets Darth Vader, what does he do? Out goes the hand, like that. It's just like this power, and they end up choking and dying. And it's a bit like that. That was the sort of inner ring. 
That's what Nebuchadnezzar was like. Threats for life all the time. Always under threat of death or torture. This was the power that Nebuchadnezzar had. It was an inner circle that people wanted to be in but were crushed when they were in it. C.S. Lewis wrote um, or gave a lecture at the University of London to graduating students and it's titled The Inner Ring. You can Google it and you can read it. I recommend you do. It's a wonderful bit of writing. It's only about six pages long. Take you 20 minutes to read it. And the lecture is an attempt to convince his young, brash, uh, upper-class English uh, graduates and listeners that um, one of the great permanent mainsprings of the human heart is to desire to be in the inner ring. Let me quote. This is Lewis. From the first day on which you enter your profession until the day when you are too old to care, you will desire the inner ring. If you do nothing about it, if you drift with the stream, you will in fact be an inner ringer. I don't say you'll be a successful one, that's as may be, but whether pining and moping outside rings that you can never enter, or by passing triumphantly further and further in one way or the other, you will be that kind of person. Lewis argues that the inner ring are not bad in themselves. Actually, they're impossible to avoid. We all want to be in an inner ring. We actually want to be, we want to know, we want to be part of it. But Lewis prophesies to his young successful students that they will be in an inner ring and nine out of ten, he said, probably all of you will choose to participate in scoundrelism within them and it will be really subtle because you will get immersed into it. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He's immersing them into it. Lewis explores the human heart, the desire to be in the inner ring and, and how eventually our hearts get corrupted and that's what Nebuchadnezzar wants for Daniel. Daniel and his mates are in the inner ring and they actually want to stay in it because they don't want to be crushed and killed <laughs> and that's fair, yeah? But here in today's reading, Daniel and his mates resolve not to defile themselves, it says there, by eating the Babylonian food or drinking the royal, uh, sorry, by drinking, by, yeah, by re eating the Babylonian food or, or drinking the wine. This is not a wise move if you're wanting to save your life. This is not a wise move if you think Babylon is in ultimate power. So instead, they eat vegetables. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, who chooses a diet of turnips and cabbage? I know, I'm in Fremantle, maybe there is some of you. But no, sorry. <laughs> who, who does that? Who would do that when you can have a steady diet of eye fillet and penfolds? But the vegetarian choice is granted, as you can see there. Daniel and his mates in verse 15 and 16 look better physically than all the other young men who ate the royal food. 
And by the time they've finished this whole three years of immersion and of brainwashing and of being in the inner ring, they are found by Nebuchadnezzar to be ten times more advanced in knowledge and understanding than all the magicians and enchanters in all of Babylon. So they look good and they're really smart. And so the obvious question for the reader is why? Why is that? Because it definitely can't be the cabbage. Why do they look better physically and smarter than all the other wise men? Well, the answer is found in the main character of the book of Daniel, a character who sits in the background, but a character who's the main character, and it's what the book's about. A character who started the exile. You can read it in verse 2 of Daniel. And we see him again in verse 9 and verse 17. Verse 9, we are told it was God who caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. That's why he ate veggies and looked great. And verse 17, we read, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. It is very important to understand the real point of this chapter. God's reputation was on the line. God's people had been ripped out of their homeland, and I made... I mean, that's never happened to me. And the best example I could give you was a pathetic joke about West Coast. But what would it really look like to be ripped out of your homeland? Where you've grown up with a history that God would rule and reign where you are. That one day the second Messiah, the the great Messiah would come, the second David would come and rule and reign. And now you're in some wild country where it just looks completely different. Who's in control here? Babylon or Yahweh? These young men, these young hostages, they represent God and it was he who gave them success. He gave them physical health and intellectual rigour. And so the hero may have been Daniel, but the power to do it was God's. And we finish the reading with this rather innocuous verse, verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Easy to pass over that, but I think it's the most important verse. Because Cyrus... Well, Cyrus was the king of a new empire, the Persian Empire. And they overthrow Babylon, and Babylon goes where every empire goes, broken and forgotten. And Daniel survived. Daniel, who represented God and his kingdom in a pagan world, had not only outmaneuvered the representative the representatives of the pagan gods, he had outlasted and outfoxed the kingdom of Babylon. He lived to see its fall, and so he and his God survived the seemingly unconquerable. These verses teach us that God 
is in control. But these verses also tell us that it is possible to operate as a person controlled by the kingdom of God in a world dominated by petty human kingdoms. For Daniel does not revolt against the culture, and nor does he compromise and therefore be soiled up by it. He doesn't hate it so much that he's just against it all the time. He doesn't love it so much that he's soiled up by it. We see in Daniel someone who we want to be, for as Christians we can feel, and actually we are, exiles. For the kingdom of God is not fully here. It's obvious in our own lives, but just flicking on the internet or on the news, that we live in a broken world. We know that. Our relationship with each other is broken. Our relationship with God has been broken, and that's because of sin. And so at one level, it seems obvious that we just have to be like Daniel to fix the brokenness. Live a perfect Daniel life, and there's books out there that will tell you to do it. The Daniel diet and all this other garbage. Live the perfect Daniel life by not revolting or withdrawing from the culture, nor completely fall for the synchronism card, and everything will work out. The problem is, not one of us here, not one, can do that perfectly. Not one of us in this church knows how to walk that balance. And for some of us who have a, a proclivity to push back against culture in either riots pushing back or withdrawal. We'll push back more and more and withdraw more and more and make inner rings by doing that. And by doing that, we only have those who agree with us who can come into the inner rings. And then as some of us who have a, a proclivity for sort of getting out into the culture and think it's not that bad, and we do that and we make inner rings there as well and only accept people who come into them. And we see it in the political parties and we see it in how we structure ourselves and how we school our kids and how we do church and it's everywhere. And my point is that we can't be the perfect Daniel and having those rings, well, at one level, we've all got to be in one. I understand that. But what hope is there for us because that doesn't heal the brokenness. Uh, in the New Testament, Peter reminds a church that they are exiles in a strange land, like we are exiles in a strange land. More and more people are feeling like exiles here even in Australia, and it's not by choice. I feel it more and more. And Jesus willingly chose something we would never choose for ourselves. We'll do anything not to be this. Jesus became the exile. Willingly, so he could bring us back from exile. 
he was exiled from God and exiled from his pe- people. By choice, he became the exile. Jesus was completely cut off from his home, exiled and abandoned by God and his people on the cross. So we will never, ever be abandoned and never be exiled from the kingdom of God and from him. Even when you're sinning, his face does not change towards you. If you think he then frowns and he's angry with you, if you think just for a second, here's a, he, this is totally off script, for a second, let's just think about the worst sin you've done ever. You got it? You know it. What's the face of the Father like when you're doing that? It doesn't change. It hasn't changed. He loves you. He knows you. We have an inheritance, it says, that will never perish or fade, for it's kept in heaven for us, and we are shielded under Jesus until he returns or he calls us home. And that's all Daniel did. He trusted God's sovereignty and his protection. For he knew God was in control and that he could never be exiled from that eternal kingdom. And God is in control in our lives. Whether today, this morning, you're on the mountaintop or whether you're in the valley whether you can see really well or you can't even see that God's in control. It's a fact. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. I'm glad. He has you. He knows you. The promises are true. God wins. God always wins. And we are his family and we can trust the winner because he provides perfect protection in his son Jesus and we are not anymore hidden behind fig leaves, but hidden in God with Christ. Amen? Amen.